Historically, for many, many years for our church, we've always taken a couple Sundays every year and um, really dedicated it to hearing, not just preaching about what Jesus can do in our lives, but hearing true testimonies of what Jesus has done in someone's life. Because this is not just a, a theory we believe. This is not just um, something that we maybe hope would, would happen in our lives or something like that. Like this is the gospel of Jesus Christ is for real. It truly can transform your life from the inside out. And this morning, <clears throat> this morning we're going to hear um, from a good friend of mine, Abe. He's going to share his story of what Jesus has done in his life. And then I'm going to close us with a few words after him. So would you... Join me in welcoming to the stage, Abe, Minchin friend. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, yeah, I think looking around, a lot of you probably have no idea who I am, but that's the beauty of today. You'll, you'll learn a little bit about who I am, and then I'll be here all day, and you can line up and share your testimony, and I'll learn about you, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will tell you, I was, as we were worshiping there a minute ago, I, I was like, you know, the funny thing, how many of you guys have seen the movie The Guardian? It's a Coast Guard movie. Anybody? You've seen the movie? Okay, so in that movie, there's a uh, helicopter pilot, you know, and the, the team that's there that's sent to rescue often. In the movie, it's primarily shipwrecks, you know, like cruisers that are going down. Uh, but there's a, there's a point in the movie where you see this uh, husband-wife that are stranded and they come to rescue the husband and he's literally drowning his wife and beating. It's, a, it's not a great scene, uh, but what I love is the lifeguard there just kind of knocks the guy out and drags him in and saves his life. And, uh, and the story wasn't awesome, but the guy there was delivered. And I would just say this at, before I share the story that I wanted to uh, bring here, and it's really a test of, it's for me to testify, I almost could give my testimony this way, to Jesus for how good he is at saving our lives. Amen? Amen. So, I'm the guy that Jesus had to knock out to get in. Um, I'm, I'm 43 years old as I stand here. I, uh, back over here I have, and I know my wife's not going to stand up, but uh, my wife Melissa and I have eight wonderful children, two sons, six daughters. So God is good. He got me, he got me on the ship and we've been cruising. Um, to this morning, my, uh, my mission is to kind of do a 40,000 feet flight over, if that makes sense, of the first 17 years of my life uh, and the moment in which Jesus kind of knocks me on the head and I realize who he is. Uh, and so let's just begin with that. Um, I grew up here in Oregon. I uh, was born in Medford, Oregon, if any of you guys know where that is. Um, I am a product of, uh, I think, what a lot of people here today probably have grown up in, and it's unfortunate but true, and it has, it's the brokenness of a divorced mother, uh, divorced and remarried multiple times. So I grew up with a house of a full-blooded sister and uh, two half-brother and sister, a half, I should say a half-brother, and a half-sister from a previous marriage. So with that said, growing up, my mom uh, did the best that she could to take care of the, the four of us as well as other people. Uh, my, my father um, was out of the picture uh, early on. When I was three years old, my mom ended up, um, for our safety, taking us out of uh, the, the house with him. He uh, was injured on the job, and long story short, it led from uh, medication to um, just an addiction, drug addiction, that essentially kind of took his, his whole identity. And, uh, and uh, it was just a bad, abusive situation. So uh, growing up with my mom and my siblings, the unfortunate truth about that was that my mom had a tendency to attract people that were broken, and primarily men, uh, into our home. Uh, I was the youngest of my siblings, and so I, I would say that in the course of our, my early days, I looked at the moving from town to town and, and meeting people and going to different schools as kind of an adventure. Um, I, I was aware uh, that there was a, a lot of tragedy going on uh, in and out of our home, uh, but I kind of just rolled with it. 
My siblings, on the other hand, did not have the same view in life. And so as they were growing up, they, they were one by one heading off into various addictions of their own. Um, and so as we kind of cruised down, uh, by the time I would say, yeah, my, my oldest sibling turned at their 16th birthday, my brother Derek moved out uh, to just get away from the house. My, my older sister, June, actually followed him the same time. So she was like 14 and a half and moved in with her boyfriend and his family. Um, and then it was just m myself and, and my sister, Katrina, my full-blood sister. And uh, she was very bitter, my, Katrina. And, uh, and so that kind of was in the house all the time. Um, so throughout the course of my, my early days, I can remember these snapshots um, where there would be an implosion in the home and I would go to my mom and um, I was always kind of like in her court. And I remember I would tell her these things. I would, I would see like whether it was the guy that was in our life or if it was one of my siblings, I would just say, I'll never be like that. You know, I was, everything from addiction, alcohol, no, that's not going to be me, mom. I don't understand why people do that. Abuse, physical abuse, that I, I'll, I, don't, I, I will never stand for that. So that was kind of the in my brain, and I remember even being very uh, condemning of my siblings whenever they would come and visit. I would just point to all their flaws, so much so that even when my older brother, he had gone to the Job Corps, and he returned to the house when I was about, oh, I'd say 15, um, he came through the door and put me in a chokehold from the reclining chair, and I knew right away, I knew he was coming to town anyway, uh, but I, it was just like, dude, what's this guy doing? And it was the first time in my life that I turned around and just physically beat my older brother up. Uh, and it was all this bottled up anger from the way he had treated me and abandoned our family and just kind of sought his own. So I had these things going on in my life uh, that nobody really knew about, and they would kind of explode in, in periods of time. And so I had, to, I had, you know, kind of conflict with the communication that I had, so to speak, with my family, um, with my mom specifically. So uh, right around, uh, you know, the, the days of snowboarding hitting the scene, I was, I, I was into skateboarding, you know, hitting the mountain, um, and, uh, and that kind of lent itself to a lifestyle that I started into where I really under started to see the hypocrisy within myself, where I began to drink, and that led to smoke and pot, which led to other drugs, which led all the way down the line to the, to the point in which I was smoking marijuana, drinking, taking acid, mushroom, coke, snorting lines, all while coming home and still trying to be the good son. Um, and so I, there, was a, there was a major conflict going on inside of me um, and, and it all kind of came to a head. So in, in the, when I was about 16 years old, and not about, I was 16, a group of us guys, snowboarder buddies of mine, we headed out, we headed out to go hit the, the mountain up in, uh, it's actually Bachelor, and we got caught in a, in a big snow flurry, whiteout situation on our way back home. Like I said, we lived in Southern Oregon, so we were headed back towards, uh, through like sisters, and they were shutting the roads down and telling everybody they needed to hit uh, get off the road, you know, get in a motel, hotel. Uh, so it was a buddy of mine, Steve, who was like a brother, uh, my cousin Aaron, group of other guys uh, that we had just been out riding, and we got a motel. Aaron was a little bit older, uh, and so he secured a hotel room for us, and so then we landed on this, this night. And this is the, this is the night uh, where the gospel, unbeknownst to me, would show up into my life. Um, because what I can tell you that I didn't obviously paint clearly at this point was all those years as a kid there was absolutely no godly man there certainly was never the word of god opened in my home there was no jesus the only time i ever had heard of jesus or or witnessed any type of uh church behavior was actually in a negative con context uh which was my my grandmother who played the organ in an old church which another story but it turns out she didn't even have Christ in her heart. She didn't know Jesus, uh, but she would talk to her friends that we'd, we'd been over for a few meals with them uh, as a family where she would tell her Christian friends that this is my heathen daughter and her heathen children. <laughs> and so growing up with that being what, what Jesus people uh, are about, I, I had a hardness towards that. So be that as it may, we, here we are, motel, all get in the room. 
Now, when we took off on the trip, and I just, just to kind of paint the picture, I wasn't recreationally using drugs at this point in my life. This was an everyday, I was a full, full send, if you want to say, addict. Uh, I was trying to live the, you know, go, had a job, had a car, you know, trying to pretend that I had it together, but I was under the influence of some form of an intoxicant pretty much every hour of my awake life. So we went out and rode, intoxicated, came back sober. Because of the whiteout, nobody had any way for us to kind of get our fix, if you will, and we landed in this hotel room where we somehow were all, because there's only one bed, six dudes, and we're definitely not getting in the one bed. We're all just kind of up all night, right? And we're, and we're basically saying, you know, hey, what do you think happens after, after this? Well, we'll go to Medford. No, like after life, after when you die, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, and so as this, this, the conversation started very casual, and it was everything from like nirvana, that's just going to be my personal, like everything I ever imagined, you know, and you can imagine how colorful those, uh, you know, were painted by some of us. And, uh, and then as it got down the line, it was the last guy who spoke up. Uh, just so you know what my statement was, this is the sad truth of where I was at, was that I said, when you die, you go back into the ground the same way you came into this place. I was an atheist, a self-proclaimed atheist, didn't believe in God, uh, had lost all sort of, any sort of spiritual, uh, uh, re, I guess, kind of acknowledgement. And that's its own issue there that the Lord brought out later. But so I sat in this room saying, there's no, there's nothing. And then Steve Jewell is... Uh, he became like a brother in my life, uh, literally. I lived with their family for years, but um, he spoke up, and uh, he said, you know, it doesn't really actually matter what you guys think. All that really matters is the truth. And, uh, and so then he continued in that vein of his just egomaniac statement, and he pr proceeded to tell me that, there, that God actually sent his son, Jesus, and his son Jesus came down here because we were all sinners. We're, we've all, we're all disobedient. We all, we all do our own thing, go our, go our own way. So Jesus came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And then he rose from the grave and he's ascended and, and he's in heaven. And here's the thing. If you, if you accept what Christ has done, then you're going to be in that kingdom and it's going to be unreal. It's going to be better than I could even describe but the truth is, is if you don't accept that, then you're going to go to a place of outer darkness. You're going to be in a place where it's a lake of fire. And I remember it like, because it fried my brain. He said, you're going to be in a place where there's gnashing of teeth and, uh, and wailing. And, and, and that's where you're going to spend your eternity. So everybody was kind of speechless. And I wasn't. Uh, I turned to him and I said, Steve, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then, and I'm like, I can't even believe that came out of your mouth. So then everybody tried, you know, laid their heads on the whatever they had, their snowboard bag, whatever. And as we all laid there after the conversation ended, what was real, very real is I laid with my head on the pillow and all I could envision was skulls that were on fire being crushed. The gnashing of teeth was like a very vivid picture in my brain of just this death like that was... I knew somehow, even though I didn't believe in God, that it was that was my destiny. I just knew that if there was like a north, I'm I'm going there, and that's it. It's. But but my response, you know, and this is the thing I've shared my testimony in snapshots over over the course of my life, um, but I rarely do this all the way through, Van. And, and so when I woke up this morning, I wrote out my testimony, which my wife was like, are you going to read it? Don't do that. I was like, no, that's just so I can not spend an hour up here. And then Ryan, no message. And oh, sorry about the baptism. And is there any shaved ice left? You know, like, because I'll go, that, that's how I'll go. But, um, but essentially here, you know, after that night, nobody really heard me talk about Jesus until I had such conflict you know, and this is one of the things where I love, because I think as Christians, we'll, we will quote scripture and we mean well, hopefully, um, and it's true, but we'll say things like, oh man, God's word, it will not return void. And we say that sometimes it's like a pat on the back of like, you did your best. I know it didn't go well, but God will do something with that. But Steve, in his preaching of the gospel in this room, 
It was like he had stuck me with this barbed, and now, you know, it's like a spear fisherman's spear. It doesn't come out very easily. It just keeps going deeper. And uh, as I just kept on, the name of Jesus became a, a thorn in my flesh. And it started with me just hating that and, and basically talking with my own group. But then right before I dropped out of high school, I still have this very vivid memory, and not because it's good. It's similar to Paul when he looks back on on his life only, you know, is not that, not, not as powerful. But I, I remember going to, this, to Hidden Valley High School, which is where I went, to the flagpole. And there was a group of these Christians that would gather in the morning and they would link up arms and they would pray at the flagpole for us, the students and the faculty. And I, this aggravation, this anger towards the name of Jesus had gotten so bad, it was just, it, w- it was nagging. I couldn't sleep. I was restless. So I went to the flagpole where they were all circling, holding hands, and I just began to mock them openly. Just, I told them that there is no God. Only weak people need a God. You all need crutches. How can you be so weak? This is so pitiful. And so that that stuck with me because now as a believer, I can say, amen, amen. Weak people like me need a God who's a crutch that I can fully rely on more than a crutch. I need someone I can fully trust in. But at that point, it was out of this just fear, anxiety. I didn't know, I, I just didn't know, like, how does one even, like, how do I approach this Jesus? And so that, that like spiraled. I dropped out of high school. And then that summer, the only way I could find some sort of quiet in the storm in my mind was through pushing even harder into the addiction vein, more and more drug usage, multiplying drugs at the same time and seeing what that would do. And I remember having these snapshots throughout that summer, even though it was just a summer of just craziness, that I remember being like, I have to pull back. There was a guy, one of my best friends, like, well, girls, my best friend's girlfriend's dad, there we go, uh, to keep in vain of the truth story. Chris Bright, her father, remember going to her house and he was permanently fried from acid, like permanently. If anybody here comes out of a drug pass, they know what I'm talking about. It means, and we'll see a lot of this now, unfortunately, on our streets with what's been going on within the homeless community coming to Portland. You'll see people just talking to themselves and basically seeing things that aren't in front of them. And we would go and hang out with this guy and we would take acid and we would see what he was seeing. Crazy stuff. And I remember being like, I need to get out of this. I, I, this is going to ruin me and I'm gonna be like him permanently trapped in some mind trip. And so I ended up, I tried to quit. I tried to give everything up and then it would just like, I would do a few days a week and then go hard into it on another weekend. I remember uh, Steve actually brought this book to one of the things we were at. It was this book called Back to Eden. If anybody's old enough to remember that, it was like going back to living off the land and doing all this. And I remember just looking for answers because it would, I would do anything except Jesus. So I was looking and looking and trying to recreate myself. And I was good at it because all those years of traveling, each time I went to a new school, a new town, I could recreate Abe. I could be a whole new version of what I wanted to be when I left the other town. So I was used to playing, but the thing is, is that it wasn't working. There was no new play that was real. And so this is where the story gets very interesting is, like I said, it was at the end of the summer, sitting with Steve, well, we were in a flat. We, we had been remodeling this flat that his parents had bought, a house on the river, and we were living in it. We lay down, good night, good night. Middle of the night, I hear him get up, and I hear the door just go boom, and then he doesn't come back. That was weird for Steve. He was like an old, old man in the fact that he liked his sleep, and he was not the guy to get up in the middle of the night. So he came back the next day, and I was like, Steve, what happened? Where'd you go? I was kind of tripping out. And he said, hey, Abe, you know, truth is, I was reading my Bible. And I realized I never actually believed what I told you guys. I never actually knew Jesus. And so I was like, are you, what? And he's like, I went to my grandma's house and I just asked her. And so she prayed with me and I just asked Christ into my heart. So I, I believe in Jesus now. And I was like, what, what, how can that be? Because everything that Steve from that snowboard trip and him telling us, he still stayed with us and was still part of everything we did. All the, all the parties, all the drugs, all, everything. Steve was right there. 
In fact, he was sometimes on the edge. I'd pull him back. And so he was kind of the way that I would say I'm going to be okay. Because if he's on the path and he knows God and I'm doing the same thing, how could anyone ever tell me that I'm not going to get into the kingdom just by default? If he's doing everything, it looks like me. And then Steve tells me, I don't even know this Jesus, and now I do. And so that blew my mind and caused even more trouble. But then if that wasn't enough, just weeks after that, my cousin Aaron showed up. And I knew he was in town because he lived in Portland. He was coming down to visit. And so I was all primed and ready with some uh, old English eight ball, which is whatever, just alcohol, ready to party. He shows up. Steve's sitting on the couch. I'm sitting there. I haven't started drinking or anything, but I'm sitting there thinking, all right, Aaron, get me out of here. Steve's gone this Jesus way. And Aaron sits down, and they start talking, and I'm sitting between them. And Aaron's telling Steve how that he just gave his life to Jesus and how everything that he'd been doing, all the partying and running, like it was all a lie, and it never brought any significance. And I'm just sitting there, and then something happened inside of me and everyone here that knows Jesus knows exactly what I'm talking about and everyone here that doesn't also does because right now I believe the spirit is moving in a lot of people's what this it's this zone right here you know you want to call it your it's like your mind and your heart it's it's your soul it's like right here I'm sitting between them and this is going and everything I've been running from is like right there and it's on fire but something happened right here in my mind where instead of denying Jesus, I believed in Jesus. And I know now that that's the grace of God that opens up the eyes and, and the heart that was so hardened over all those years and plenty of reasons that I could make excuses. But nonetheless, there it was. And all I did was just turn and I go, okay. I literally said, what do I got to do? What do I have to do? And so Steve and Aaron looked at me, and they were like obviously so stoked. And they said, come on, Abe, let's go. And we walked out the door, and we went up on the deck that was overlooking the Rogue River. And they just led me in praying. And, and they just, they're like, Abe, just, just give it to Jesus. Just, just confess all of the stuff inside of you. Just confess that. Give it all over to Jesus. Just give your life to Jesus and receive what he's given to you, which is life. Do you believe in Jesus Yes, Steve. Yes, Aaron. And they're just praying over me. And I'm, I'm just, uh, and then something happens, radical, a radical touch with a hand of God on my life where I, as I'm on the railing, everything I'd done, all the way back to the, like images of me walking down the hall in middle school, slamming lockers and pushing kids, like all of the littlest detail of my sin was just being taken. And it felt like there was a rope that had been knotted inside of me, just being pulled out. All of that garbage, all that filth, all of the un unqualified, unapproachable, just sick, just taken out. And then the beautiful thing, any of you that know me well, the Lord did something marvelous that day, which is the moment that all happened, he shut my mouth supernaturally. Because after, I, after that, I turn, tears in my eyes, look at Steve, look at Aaron, and then I start laughing, this thing inside of me, not just happy, joy, like, I've never known this. Ah. And then we go downstairs, and they're like, what happened? And I go, ah. and then I just cry, and then I'd laugh, and then I just sit there, and I, but I could not speak. I could not say a word, period. I went to bed that night. I woke up the next morning. Now, here's the funny thing. We were doing a great job of remodeling this flat, even so much, we created this new type of door, which is if you just take a tape measure, and when you're measuring, just take 12 inches away. Just you don't need the full door. So the bathroom door in our flat had one foot missing from the top. I wake up, and I hear the shower going. And I, I woke up, and I was like, whoa. And I go, I feel like a newborn baby. So I go over the door and I knock and Steve's in there. He's all, what? I go, Steve, I feel like a newborn baby. And he just shuts the shower off. Hang on, Abe. And he comes out and he opens up his Bible. And I got to read this to you guys. And I was telling Ryan, I'm like, this morning when I woke up, it just dawned on me as I was going back through this is what Jesus said, he or what, what Steve said. He took me over and he said, let me, let me show you. And he handed me the Bible and I read this. 
It says in John chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to, to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where. It comes from where it goes, and, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And it continues, it says, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Now listen, this is what's crazy. I had never read the Bible. Never. I've heard the Bible quoted. I'd had people, I, I mean, use it as a way of trying to crack me over the head, rightly so, looking back. But the moment that I read the Bible, this whole section, born again, that's not something that you can come to a conclusion of with just your, your rationale, right? We know that Peter was the first one to stand out and make the confession, which oftentimes Peter was known for taking shoes off or sandals and putting them right here. Ah, he, didn't know, he normally did not say the right thing. But in that day when Jesus asked, who is it that you say that I am? And, and Peter confessing, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, well, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father. The Holy Spirit got a hold of this 17 years ago. I went on to read, and this is a whole other story that we can get into a whole other day, but I became so in love with the Word of God, and it all started, and this is the key. You know, looking back, it's not about trying to clean the fish before it's caught, right? It was all about the fact of that all of the things in my life, including all that was broken, or the lack of a father, or even just the way that I would say with my mouth one thing and do another, all those things taught me and brought me to a place where I was able to see the truth that there is no hope apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I know Ryan's going to come up here and share with you I would love it if I could just pray as he comes out and shares scripture with us today. But I would also just encourage each and every one of us here today to not in any way take and make small the things that God has done in our lives. Because the testimony which each and every one of us has, whether you think it's great or small, it's to testify of what Jesus Christ has done. And he continues to move mountains and change lives and save and take what was dead and bring it to life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that your word, like, like I said earlier, will not return void. Lord, I pray in advance as Ryan's coming up here, uh, Lord, that, that you would just speak through him. We thank you that you have taken such care to preserve your living word for us, Lord as your people, but also we pray for those here today that are maybe just asking, they're questioning, they're, they're looking into you, Jesus. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes and soften their hearts to see and save. Because, Lord, we know that you're well acquainted with our faults and failings. And you've made a way, regardless of all of those things, for us to be with you because you love us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all respond to that love as we continue in your word and we continue here in this park, in this place, knowing that you are here with us, for us. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to just take a few minutes and read a, a very, very amazing story out of John chapter 4, coming right on the heels of what Abe just shared out of John chapter 3. And I'm just going to read it out of the uh, NIV. It says, now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews? Don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. What's crazy is that this story takes place right on the heels of chapter three where Jesus meets with Nicodemus, a religious leader. And it's there in John chapter three that Abe just mentioned Jesus telling him, Nicodemus, this is how one can be saved. And it's there that, that we hear the most famous Bible verse, Bible passage, John three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Again, you must be born again. You can't try to save yourself. You can try, but you're gonna fail. So chapter three, Jesus lays out, how can someone be saved? Through being born again of the spirit. But here in chapter four, as Jesus meets with this Samaritan woman, the theme I believe is then who can be saved? Who can be saved? In other words, who gets to go to heaven? And isn't that a good question that hopefully we all are concerned about in our lives? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have that kind of security. We know that when we die, we're going to go to heaven when we die. But, but for those of you that don't, I pray as Abe was met with that same thing, like what's after this life? I hope that you would consider that. What is after this life? So who can be saved? Who can go to heaven? Now, in our story this morning, we have Jesus. He's on his way to a northern region up in Israel. And we're told here that he has to go through Samaria, which is pretty um, interesting. Because, and let me set the stage for you. Um, because the whole encounter here in chapter 4 takes place in this town called Samaria. It's north of Jerusalem. And what makes this significant in our story is that at some point in Israel's history, they had a civil war break out and Israel got divided into two nations and Israel um, <clears throat> fell away from God. They disobeyed. They, they went in utter disobedience, just complete, just against God. And God's like, hey, if you don't return, like, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into captivity. I'm going to allow your enemies to overtake you. That's the, the short end of the story. And what happened was they didn't repent of their sins. They didn't turn to God and, and their enemies overtook them and invaded and they pulled um, those into captivity. And when Assyria, that's who um, took them captive, they took away a lot of most of the people out of Israel and put them in a different land. And then they brought in other people and um, into what we know as Israel up in the north. And what you have there, and they would leave a lot of the poor people. And what you had is intermarriage would, would happen. So you have these foreigners coming in, um, intermarrying with these Jews. And eventually the blending of religions would happen. It was just a mess. 
And one day Israel came back to the land after captivity. They wanted to start over, start anew. They're, going to, they're like, hey, this is our land. We're going to build the walls of the city. We're, <clears throat> we're, going, to, we're going to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans, they're watching this happen. They're like, hey, we want to end on that project, but they didn't have good motives. And the Jews are like, absolutely not. Like, stay away. We hate your kind. You guys aren't true Jews. You're half-breeds. You're not welcome. And you're not welcome here. And that just infuriated the Samaritan people. And after that point, man, there was just a hate-hate relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Again, the Samaritans twisted the Jewish religion creating their own version of it. They created their own um, synagogue or temple. In, in 128 BC, a leader of the Jewish people went and burned it down, again, adding fuel to the fire. There was no warm, fuzzy feelings between Jews and Samaritans. A widely used Jewish proverb stated that a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than pig's flesh. If a Jew happened to be in Samaria or their Samaritan territory and they're eating at what they would, maybe we would call a restaurant, they would bring their own utensils. They would bring their own bowls and cups. And they just, they're like, we're not going to even use your equipment because you guys are gross to us, disgusting to us. And the greatest insult that a Jew could use was to call someone a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, we're told that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're talking to Jesus and they're like, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're possessed by a demon? Like that was their biggest insult that they could give Jesus is calling him a Samaritan. And again, you have this thick, long lasting, generations deep tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And they avoided each other at all costs. And so by the time we come to John chapter four, the Jewish people still can't stand the Samaritan people. The Samaritan people can't stand the Jewish people, but here's the problem. You have Judea down in the south where Jerusalem is in Israel. You have Galilee up in the north and right in the middle you have Samaria. And if you're a Jewish person, you're traveling from the south to the north, where are you going? The shortest route you could take would be through Samaria, but... <laughs> If you're Jewish, most Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs. They would go the long way around just to avoid them. That's how thick this hatred was. And so it's interesting when Jesus says that he had to pass through Samaria. Because, listen, that was odd and it was uncommon. He didn't have to. But the Bible says that he had to. Why would Jesus say this? Why would the Bible allude to this? Listen to this, because Jesus is all about people. Jesus loves people and he knew and he understood that there was someone there in Samaria that needed him and he was willing to go. Where you and I would have avoided, Jesus invaded. And that's what I want you to see this morning, that instead of avoiding this controversial city and place in Samaria, and, uh, instead of running from it, he ran to it. He didn't avoid the mess, he entered into the mess. And so as Jesus is making his way, he comes to this well. No doubt Jesus is tired, he's been walking over a mountain range and he stops to rest. And this was, listen, the most inopportune time and place for him to stop. This well was in the middle of nowhere. It was outside the city. Most people at this time of day would be inside the city. The Bible tells us that this encounter takes place at noon. That would be the hottest part of the day. Temperatures would be well over 100 degrees. And Jesus is there. He's all alone. The disciples are in town getting food. And Jesus is waiting for something or someone. And we're told that a Samaritan woman comes to the well the same well that Jesus is at, the same time that Jesus is there sitting by himself. And Jesus asked her, hey, can you draw me some water? Now, even this, his encounter with, with this woman is very uncommon in his day. 
In a, in a Middle Eastern culture, a woman is generally not out in public by herself, especially in an Arab society. She's either would be accompanied by her husband or her son or her brother, but she's never out in public. And women don't speak to men in public in that day. That's just how it was. There was no conversation between men and women. And so we, here we have Jesus. He's initiating this conversation with this woman in public. And again, this would have been scandalous. This would have been socially unacceptable. And not only is she just a woman, but later in this conversation, we're told that Jesus knows the very truth about her. She's a sinful woman. She's been married and divorced five times. She's been around the block to say the least. And the current person that she's living with is not her spouse. So she's living in sexual immorality. Jesus knew it all along. And again, Jesus is less concerned about social norms. He's all about sharing the hope of the gospel. And this woman here in John chapter four becomes to all of us this morning an illustration that provides the scope and range of who is the gospel for. We learn in chapter three, Jesus's heart, that the gospel is for a religious elite named Nicodemus. And here we learn in chapter four that it's for this woman. And these two people could not be more different. In fact, everything about these two interactions are about as opposite as they come. You have Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night. This woman meets with Jesus smack dab in the hottest part of the day at noon. Nicodemus is a leader in his society. This woman is an outcast. Nicodemus was morally righteous. This woman comes to Jesus with a very shady reputation. Nicodemus had the Old Testament memorized. That's impressive. This woman has an incomplete understanding about who God is. Again, everything in this woman's life is different from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was married. This woman again, she's a five-time divorcee. And the question then is, who is the gospel for? Is it for people who are smug and self-righteous and who are moralists? Or is it for people who are outcasts and they're viewed totally like just as lost? They're living the wild life, so to speak. And listen, the answer is yes. <laughs> the good news about Jesus is that it reaches self-righteous sinners like Nicodemus, and it also reaches outcasts and overt sinners like this woman and like you and I, amen? amen. And this lady here in our story, she's blown away that this man, Jesus, would be talking to her. She's like, what are you doing? Like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. This doesn't happen. She's absolutely stunned that Jesus has anything to do with her. But once again, this shows us that Jesus isn't hung up by social or cultural barriers. He doesn't see man or woman, rich or poor, black or white, Hispanic or African. He sees people. He sees hearts that are in desperate need of his love. And, that, and this tells us something super important and super beautiful, and that is this. The gospel is not prejudice. The love of God does not segregate. The Bible tells us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no dividing lines. The gospel doesn't see color or social status. And so this woman, she's blown away. She can't believe anything that anyone or this man especially would have anything to do with her, that he's talking to her, that he would ask anything from her, that he would even engage her with conversation. Listen, there might be some of you here today and because of where you've been and the things that you've done or the things that you're going through in your life, you might be here wondering if God would want to do anything with you. Would he have anything to do with you? And if your friends, maybe your circle of influence, if they found out that you were in this weird church gathering in a park, they would be like, dude, you don't belong there. Like, what are you doing? And maybe you're wondering, does God even care? Is he aware? Would God ever really reach out to me? Yeah, Abe, that was nice. That was your story. But would he reach out to me? Listen to this. The message that comes out of this story is that Jesus goes to great lengths to reach people. 
He goes to great lengths. And if it's just for one person, this Samaritan woman, even if this person is a social outcast, he's going to go there because the Bible tells us that he's a friend of sinners. And we're in good company, right? We're a bunch of sinners. And he, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And listen to this. Jesus is wanting to reach out to you this morning. Wherever you're at, he wants you to know that he loves you. The Bible says that he loves you with an everlasting love. Would you be open to that? Would you be open to receiving that? And Jesus here, he's engaging this woman in conversation. She's blown away. She's shocked. And Jesus tells her, listen, if you knew who I am, you would be so shocked. You wouldn't be so shocked that I'm asking you for a cup of water, but you would be asking me for something so much greater you would be asking me for living water. And living water, we're, known, we're told in the Bible, synonymous for salvation. In the book of Jeremiah chapter two, it says this, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, and he calls them broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's what God is saying, that they've chosen a spirituality. They've chosen an approach to God that is based on their own ideas, their own righteousness, their own standards. And that is what happens to so many. That's what so many of us do today. Rather than taking this free gift, this living water, which is salvation in the name of Jesus alone, where you would believe that Jesus died for your sins through faith in him and that he forgives you of your sins and he wants to change your life. And rather than accepting that beautiful free gift is to reject this living water and create your own cistern, your own salvation, to, to say the least. And many people say, you know what? I think I'm a good person. I think God will allow me into his kingdom based upon my good deeds. They outweigh all my bad deeds. You know, I go to church a few times a year. I'm a good person. I'll probably go to heaven. Or I'm not as bad as someone else. And we get comparing our lives and our sin. Listen, that's creating your own type of, your own type of cistern, your own type of well for salvation. But listen to this. The Bible tells us that it's broken and it's cracked and it won't hold any water. It will not save you. So if you're trying this morning to earn your way to heaven, earn your way like, hey, God, I'm going to try to make you happy and appease your wrath. Listen, it won't save you. You can try and you will try and you will try and you will try and it will not work. What you and I need, listen to this, is living water. You need water that comes from Jesus. Isaiah 55 says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. In other words, you can't buy your way in, just simply come. Jesus calls this living water a gift. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to qualify for it. It's free. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so this woman, she's blown away by what Jesus is saying. She doesn't get this entirely at first and we don't have time to dive into the depths of this story. But at first she's like, whoa, this living water would be great. But this well is too deep. You have nothing to draw from. Where are you gonna get this amazing living water that's free? And Jesus, though, he zeroes in and he says to her, listen, I'm not talking about the water found in this well. I'm not talking about quenching your physical thirst. That would be impressive. But he's not talking about that. He says, whoever drinks of this water from this well will thirst again. And he's revealing, Jesus is revealing her need that she needs something. She doesn't need a physical solution because that wasn't the greatest problem. She needs something spiritual. And he's revealing the reality that man is unsatisfied. It doesn't matter what it is in life, how grandiose it may appear to you, nothing in this life, nothing in this world will truly satisfy. And maybe this morning you're in business. Maybe you're a businessman, businesswoman. You're like, man, if I just close that next business deal worth millions of dollars, let me tell you, th that will satisfy me. Listen, you will thirst again. 
You can try the next business deal. You will thirst again. You get that promotion at that job that you've been working so hard for, longing for. It might satisfy you for a weekend or a week. It might, the plaque might look good. The promotional plaque on your wall might look good. But listen, you will thirst again. You will thirst again, whatever it is, fill in the blank. If I get that dream house, entertainment, the next high, sexual fantasies, listen, you will thirst again. There is nothing in this life that will fully satisfy the longing in your heart. Only Jesus will. Only Jesus truly satisfies. And after seeing her sin, this woman, Jesus radically changes her life. And we're told later on in this chapter that once she allowed Jesus to heal her and, and she experienced that forgiveness of sins, the Bible tells us, this is an incredible part of the story I didn't read, is that she leaves her jar there with Jesus. Now, I don't wanna to read too much into this. I don't wanna super spiritualize this, but I want this picture of her leaving her jar at the well. Like she came there for that sole purpose, but she leaves it there with Jesus, is that this woman came out of the city carrying a burden with her, a water pot. She came out at noon. Remember the hottest part of the day, women got water super early in the day, but she comes out at noon. Why? Because she probably wants to avoid people. She's been embarrassed probably by her past. She's embarrassed about her current living situation. She doesn't want people staring at her, gossiping about her, rumors flying around about her. She doesn't want any interaction with people. But as soon as she meets Jesus, as soon as she puts her faith in Jesus, her trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us that she leaves her water pot with Jesus. She leaves her burden with him. And she goes back to a city without a burden. She's no longer avoiding people now in her life. She's running towards them and she becomes an evangelist. Look at what Jesus has done in my life. Why does she do this? Because suddenly, listen, her past doesn't matter anymore. She's been forgiven. She's no longer embarrassed of her past. She's no longer ashamed of it. And now her past has become for her a platform to demonstrate the love and grace and compassion of a wonderful God who reaches out to people. People like Nicodemus who are on the inside and people like this woman at the well who's an outcast on the outside. Listen, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus loves you you. And Jesus can change your life. This lady is a living illustration of what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The apostle Paul would say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, your past life has passed away, has gone away. Behold, new things have come. And for this woman, the old things have passed away and new things are here for her. No more burden. She has a new identity. She has a new freedom. She's a new person. Listen, this is the power of the gospel. The gospel is for every single person. And whoever would believe in Jesus, Jesus will transform your life if you put your faith in him. I love Corey Ten Boone. She would often say in her life that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And maybe you think this morning that your life is really low. Listen, God's love will meet you right there. Would you turn to him in faith? Would you give your life to Jesus? No matter where you're at, God's love is there for you. And for those of us who have experienced that love, would you say a very loud amen?